0: Micah chapter 5, if you've been with us, then you will recall that chapters 1 through 3 sounded a a rather bleak message. Uh, It was a message of stern rebuke on God's wayward people. Uh, The church in Micah's day looked a whole lot like the world around them. Uh, You had the wealthy oppressing the poor, and their ravenous pursuit of more. Uh, The religious establishment was really nothing more than a puppet in the hands of the wealthy and powerful, the influencers of society. And all the while, the poor were suffering, having their inheritance, their place in the promised land among God's people, ripped away from them. And so, as we've seen, greed, idolatry, uh, Foe religion, oppression, injustice, these were all characteristic marks of Israel to the north and Judah to the south, of God's people during this time. And as a result, God was going to use the, the mighty Assyrian empire to send the northern kingdom into exile and something very similar to the southern kingdom of Judah. Assyria would make its way all the way to the gates of Jerusalem and then eventually later on be hauled off into exile by the Babylonians. But then we saw uh, in chapter four a a transition that God has more to say than just a word of disciplinary judgment on his wayward people. Chapter four, it's full of notes of gospel hope, of good news. So the last time we saw Micah tell about uh, how in the latter days, Mount Zion would be raised as the highest mountain in all of the earth, and the nations would stream to Jerusalem, saying to one another, Come, let's ascend the hill of the Lord, that the Lord might teach us his ways, and we might walk in his paths. And we saw that this is something being realized even now as people all over the world today ascend the hill of the Lord and come, as Hebrews puts it, to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, as the church gathers, coming into the presence of God through the blood of Jesus to sit under the teaching of the Lord and obey what he says. But after speaking this word of gospel hope, to to his generation, then Micah brings them back to their present situation. He brings his audience back and tells them, look, suffering is on the horizon. And so if you look at chapter 4, verse 10, for now you shall go out from the city into exile. Verse 11, now many nations assemble against you. So now, now is a season. Now is a word that Micah uses several times in the span of just a few verses to say now is a time of suffering and distress for the people of God. And we see that in, in chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. And so chapter 5 is continuing this message of a coming crisis. The Assyrians are coming and the people will be removed from the promised land, and taken away into exile. And so the question naturally arises as we're working our way through, through Micah here. If in the first half of chapter 4, God promises a bright future for the people of God, uh, where Zion is exalted and the word of the Lord is going forth from Zion, and the nations are streaming to Zion, being gathered together to sit under the teaching of the Lord... And then the second half of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 are saying, but now suffering and and distress, the question naturally arises, well then how do we get from here to there, right? How do we get from here, this time of distress, to there? And chapter 5 is meant to answer that question. Chapter 5 answers that question in at least two ways that I want us to think about this morning. In the first half of chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, Micah speaks to us about the ruler God promises. The ruler God promises. That's verses 1 through 6. Then in the second half of the chapter, verses 7 through 15, Micah will talk about the remnant God protects. The remnant God protects. And really what Micah is talking about is... Jesus and the people that he saves. That's really what Micah is talking about in in Micah chapter 5. And so in describing both, he is answering how God will bring his gospel purposes to pass in the world. Okay, So with that framework in mind, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's word beginning in Micah chapter 5 verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore, shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our places palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through treads down and tears in pieces and there is none to deliver Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you, and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off uh, sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Well, I want to start with a question this morning. And it's, it's a simple one. When the going gets tough, what do you and I as followers of the Lord Jesus need more than anything else? When dark days loom on the horizon and distress is coming like a crashing wave over us, what is it that you and I need first and most in our lives? What you would say to that question I think the answer that we find in the scriptures might surprise a lot of people today. <laughs> what we need, your brothers and sisters, more than anything else in the midst of distress and difficulty is to be reminded of the Savior God has promised. We need to catch a glimpse of Jesus Christ. We need to gaze upon The founder and perfecter of our faith. And in a manner, that is what Micah is up to here in Micah chapter 5, as he speaks to a a remnant of believers who are anticipating the trial of exile. He is giving them a word of gospel hope, a vision of the coming promised Savior and King, spoken of uh, throughout the Old Testament. He wants to give them a vision of God's King, the Shepherd King. But first, Micah continues, as we said, the sobering reality of exile in the beginning of chapter five. The Assyrian army is coming to lay siege against Israel, and notice what he says: even Israel's leader will be struck by a rod with a rod on the cheek. It's a It's a picture of derision. It's a picture of humility or humiliation, I should say. Here's Israel's leader and he's completely helpless. He, He can't save himself, let alone save Israel. And Assyria is calling all the shots. That's going to be the reality for God's people, Micah is saying. And against that dark, backdrop then, Micah turns attention to how God is going to raise up a new king, a king who will come forth for the Lord, who will come and rule for the Lord. He will be God's king, who brings all of God's promises to fruition, brings them to pass. So let's look this morning at verses 1-6 through first of all, and think about the ruler God Promises. I want us to think first of all about this king's origin. Have a look at verse 2. Familiar verse, probably the most well-known verse in the book of Micah. You, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. And, And so this promised ruler is to come forth from Bethlehem. Now that's, that's maybe not as much of a shocker to us as it, it probably should be because we're so used to singing about a little town of Bethlehem around Christmas time. But in, in Micah's day, this would have been an astounding claim to say that God's promised king is going to emerge from this little town of Bethlehem. Because at this time, Bethlehem was... Uh, you know, it was a nowhere town. It was insignificant. In fact, when um, 46 towns are listed in Joshua chapter 15, 46 towns in Judah, Bethlehem doesn't even get a mention. It's that insignificant. It's like one of these little towns in, in, in Pennsylvania. If you're driving through it and you blink, you miss it, right? It doesn't even have sheets. That's how you know it's a really small town. If It doesn't even have a sheets. That's, that's Bethlehem. It's, it's nowhere town. And so you got to ask the question, why, why is God's promised king going to come from there? Well, one of the reasons is because it's David's town. It's one of the reasons that the promised king will emerge from this little town of Bethlehem because it's David's town. Now think about this. In King David you already have, as it were, a prefigurement of what Micah is prophesying about here in chapter 5. You have a shepherd who becomes king, who comes forth from obscurity and by the power of God, is is, uh, raised to power, to rule over Israel, to subdue his enemies, and to secure the peace of the people of God. We see all of that in David, and it's a picture. It's a picture of this one who would come forth from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, great David's greater son. I actually think this promise uh, is related to David in another important way that we need to recognize. Micah, with the language he uses here, is almost definitely alluding to the words of the prophet Nathan, spoken to King David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When Nathan said to King David that God is going to bring forth from him one of his own descendants, one who would sit upon the throne and rule forever. Okay, so, so Micah, Micah is speaking or tapping into this And we might also add here that one of Micah's contemporaries, the prophet Isaiah, was saying virtually the same thing in a passage like Isaiah chapter 11. You remember there that we read that God's promised king will come forth like like a shoot from the stump of Jesse, uh, David's father. Incidentally, just last week I was walking somewhere and I saw a tree cut down to the stump this shoot that came out of the base of the tree, and, and it was as though a whole other tree had grown forth from this stump. And I thought, hey, <laughs> it made me think of Isaiah chapter 11 as I was reflecting on this passage. And so we see in, in David's coming forth from Bethlehem, raised up by the power of God to rule over Israel, a prefigurement of the shepherd king of the promised king. And he would be great David's greater son who will reign not just for 40 years, but forever for, for eternity. And so his, his origins, a descendant of David from Bethlehem. But then notice we're not done talking about origins here because that's not all that Micah has to say. There's, an, there's another dimension to this setting this king apart from all others who have come before him. So take a look at the rest of verse 2. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, at the very least, this is tracing God's covenant promises in history to say that the coming forth of this promised king is, is rooted in ancient promises. Right? So it's connected to uh, the promise given to David that one of his own descendants would, would sit upon the throne. It's, uh, it's, it's hearkening back to the earlier promise of spoken by Jacob over Judah that the scepter would never depart from Judah and one from Judah would rule over his brothers and rule over the nations of the earth. It's hearkening even further back to the promise given to Abraham that through his seed, the the nations of the world would be blessed. And we can go all the way back to Genesis 3, that the promised seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. You see, Jesus came to bring God's promise to save a people for himself to pass. I say all of that, and then I I, I, want to tell you, I, I don't think that's what Micah is saying. I don't think that's what the Spirit, better yet the Spirit, is saying through the prophet Micah. When Micah speaks of his coming forth from of old, from ancient days, I'm convinced he's actually taking us back into eternity. Uh, this, this language, uh, ancient days, coming forth from of old, in the Old Testament, is, is language connected with, uh, with eternity, and this is in fact how the church has read Micah chapter 5 verse 2 down through the centuries until only very very recently has this has this new reading of Micah 5 two, come up that it's rooted it's, it's limited to God's promises in history so how has the the church for oh I'd say about 1700 years understood Micah chapter 5 verse 2 they've understood it as referring to the the divine son's eternal generation from the father. That he is the eternally begotten son of the father, the ancient of days. In other words, his coming forth is without beginning. He is from the father, from eternity. He is the eternally begotten son who has always been and will always be one with the Father and the Spirit in the Blessed Trinity. And so who is God's promised King of Israel? Well, as we take in what Micah is saying about the origins of this promised King, we've got to say there is no one like him. He is on the one hand the descendant of David according to the flesh, the King of Judah, the seed of Abraham. Uh, the, the, the promised seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head yes but he is also on the other hand the divine son the second person of the holy trinity eternally begotten of the father that my friends is our savior that's our king the lord jesus christ very god very man And so do you see what Micah is saying to his original hearers here? See what God's word is saying to us? Micah is saying to his generation against the the dark backdrop of exile, what he's doing is he's he's giving believers uh, a glorious description of God's promised king in order to encourage them in order to steady them for the trials that are coming, to help them face the present and the light of the future. He's saying, yes, things are going to be bleak, things are going to get hard, but judgment is not the only or the final word God speaks. You see, for the faithful remnant, for those trusting in God's promises, there is hope in Jesus, God's Coming, king. You see, brothers and sisters, it's the same for us, isn't it? This is, this is what we really do need, despite all of the other messages that are thrown at us. What we need in days of difficulty, in times of distress, is to be reminded of the Savior God has promised, to be reminded of the shepherd king, and to learn more and more to see the momentary afflictions of this life in the light of God's settled, decreed plan, which he is fulfilling in Jesus Christ. Now do notice how Micah describes the distress of God's people here. We need to back up a little bit. Chapter 4, verse 10 to see what he's really getting at. But he's describing the distress of God's people in terms of a woman in labor. A woman experiencing labor pains. She's in distress. Um, She is under the control of enemies until the time she gives birth. Micah's Micah's speaking to his, his original hearers in that sense. And their distress is equivalent to their being under the rule of foreign powers. And Micah is saying, God's people are going to experience this painful distress, but that pain will ultimately prove to be productive and lead to a future salvation. I think a whole, you know, a whole sermon needs to be preached on this theme because it's not something that just pops up in Micah chapters 4 and 5, This is actually a theme that we can see running throughout the scriptures. This this is a pattern of a woman in labor and distress um, and the birth of the child bringing about new beginnings and new life. It's a theme that we find throughout the Bible, and it's a theme that needs to shape our understanding of the church in this present age. She is like a mother giving birth in distress, but momentary suffering gives way to the joy of new life. That was was Israel's experience under the sway of Assyria and Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome as they waited, trusting in God's promise of a shepherd king. And it's also the experience of the church today as she awaits his return. Present distress gives way to salvation and so his origin. But then notice here in, in verses 4 uh, through 6, Mike all says, also says something to us about his ministry. And the primary metaphor in verses 4 through 6 is that of a shepherd. And verses 4 through 6 are almost entirely positive. Notice what he says. It's a beautiful picture. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. And so here's the description of the, the gathered people of God brought together by one shepherd as one flock under his protection to dwell secure and in peace. It's, it's a picture Of the the global church trusting in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. And don't miss what he says in verse 5. He shall be their peace. Now that's language that the Apostle Paul picks up, isn't it? In the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14. Where he's describing the unity that the church enjoys in Jesus Christ. So what Micah spoke of, Paul is saying, is being realized even now in the church of Jesus Christ as people from every nation, every background, uh, because they trust in Christ and belong to his flock, Paul can say in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. So what Micah said is true in Jesus Christ, what Micah said uh, is true. In Jesus Christ, that's what Paul is drawing out here in Ephesians two fourteen that we have peace with God and peace with one another because of the cross. Now it's always it's always a dangerous thing for a pastor to throw in an illustration at the last minute, but I'm I'm going to go in anyway. Um, last night. Karis was not feeling well, um, she, she uh, got a fever, so please pray, pray, for, pray for us this week as we anticipate welcoming uh, another child into the family that God would give health and strength. But anyway, Karis was uh, not feeling well, so we decided to take it easy and we, we uh, laid down in the living room and watched uh, a movie together called Raya, the Last Dragon. All right, I saw some heads go up. I've got people's attention now, okay. Raya the Last Dragon. It's a great movie, I I loved it, I really did. I wanna be careful here. Uh, If you're you're worried about spoilers, just cover your ears for a minute, Um, because I am gonna give spoilers more than likely. But you remember the basic plot line, if you've seen it, you you know, that uh, back in the far distant past, all of these different tribes uh, Lived together in peace and harmony in a place called Kumandra, um, with some really cool dragons, if I might say. But uh, what happened is these, you know, these, these drune monsters. You can correct me later if I'm getting these details wrong. But these, these drune monsters came and just started wreaking havoc on on the peace of Kumandra, and uh, they desoul people and turn people into stone. And so loved ones are being lost. And, and now everything is thrown into chaos and the tribes are no longer at peace with one another. They, they're only looking after themselves, taking care of themselves. And I'm trying to be careful here, but you remember the, the, the end of the story is all about how the tribes of Kumandra will come back together once again and dwell in peace. And instead of being at each other's throats, they will actually be living together in harmony and peace as one. That's, that's the story of Raya, the last dragon. As I'm watching the movie last night, I'm doing what pastors do. I'm thinking all about this morning's sermon, and I'm thinking, wow, this, this wonderfully connects with what we're going to be talking about tomorrow morning. And you can see the longing of the movie is to see people who are at odds, at enmity with one another, find a way to be at peace and to dwell together in harmony. And Raya gives you this fanciful story about how that's going to take place. And, it, and the reality of it is, the movie is a fantasy. But dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is a real, risen, reigning Savior, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, And because of what he has done and is doing in his church today, people can know peace. And Christians are those who are being called to to live now in the light of the future and to live now in the light of what's already true because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been called by the good shepherd and you've heard his voice, if you're following him, then whatever your background, whatever your ethnicity, your heritage, your story, the gospel says to you, we are one in Christ Jesus. Not because we see eye to eye on everything, not because it's not hard to to love one another and to learn from one another, but because we have in common a shepherd king who has by his finished work made us one Flock, And we belong together, the gospel says to us, because we are in Christ together. And that reality shapes our lives in the here and now. And so because he is our peace, that has implications for how we live, how we relate to one another in the church. At the very least, it means we must learn to swallow our pride and practice humility counting others more important than ourselves. We must learn to listen to one another instead of rushing ahead in judgment because Jesus himself is our peace. But then notice, let's keep going in Micah, uh, in verses four through six, that the, the shepherding imagery now has a, a, a different tone. Um, in verse five, the people of God are going to triumph over their enemies, the Assyrians. Uh, There will be seven shepherds and eight rulers. That progression from seven to eight is used elsewhere in the Bible in places like the book of Proverbs, not to talk about a literal number, but as a way to say here in Micah 5, we're going to triumph and put people in leadership positions um, such that they will shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword but these are different kinds of shepherds and a different kind of sort. Have a look at the end of verse six. It's important for our understanding here. Micah says, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. He, notice he, the shepherd king will do it. See, the victory of the people of God is really a derivative of the victory of the shepherd king. Christ's kingdom, Micah is telling us, in his day and today, Christ's kingdom will advance and he will rule. Now, I I think it's really helpful to bring in at at this point something like the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism to give us a handle to understand what does the rule of King Jesus look like in this world? And you remember it asks that question how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer to the question is, Christ executes the office of a king by subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and our enemies. It's saying Christ the king is the victor, and he rules with a sword. Micah says, but not with your typical sword. Not with military or political might. Instead, in Revelation 19, John sees a vision of King Jesus, the, the conquering king who conquers by means of the, the sharp, double-edged sword that comes forth from his mouth, which is the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God, by which Jesus Christ subdues us to himself, rules over us, and makes conquest of the world. And so Micah is helping us understand that as the word of the Lord goes out from Zion, King Jesus advances his purposes and will win the victory. Micah's big point in telling this to his own generation is to encourage them, to give them hope. But my friends, the message for us is is the same. We, We must not trust in our own wisdom. We must not trust in the wisdom of this world. In case we forget, we must not trust in politicians. We must not trust in our education or our ability to make lots of money. Our hope rests in the shepherd king who raises up under-shepherds in the church, in his kingdom, to protect and defend the flock of God. And by these under-shepherds, Christ will shepherd his people, as Micah puts it, even in the land of Nimrod. In other words, in Babylon. Micah is saying, in Old Testament vocabulary, what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 that he will build his church an enemy occupied territory and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so the ruler God promises, and then very quickly here, the remnant God protects in verses seven through 15. And notice, notice how the first part of verse seven and verse eight are essentially saying the same thing. They, they depict the, the faithful, the remnant people of God among the nations of the earth. Okay, so verses 7 and 8 at the beginning parallel one, one another and then they go their separate ways. They say something different. Uh, so the remnant, verse 7, will be a blessing to the nations like rain showers, they will bring renewal. But then in verse 8, the remnant in the midst of the nations will be like a lion in the midst of a flock of sheep. Okay, so verses 7 and 8 are talking about the effects of God's people among the nations of this earth. The effects being both blessing and judgment. And sometimes I think we struggle to hold, hold these things together. I mean, after all, we We want to be positive, so we recognize that we are to be a blessing. The church is to be an instrument of blessing to the world. That is true. But the Bible describes the church in the world as God's agent of both blessing and cursing. Of both salvation and judgment. Not that we do the blessing and the judging, but that through us as the word of the lord of the word of the gospel goes out into the world the purposes of god in salvation and judgment are being worked out in history i think the apostle paul he he felt the weight and the solemnity of this he talks about this in second corinthians chapter 2 verse 15 in these words he says, we are the aroma of Christ toward God among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? He's saying what Micah was saying. That God's people, as we proclaim the good news and seek to live for Jesus Christ in this world, we are the aroma of Christ to dying men and women. And for some, it is aroma an aroma from death to death, and for others, uh, a means in the hand of Almighty God to bring salvation. And so you see, as the church bears witness in the world, we need to understand that destinies are being worked out. Heaven and hell as the eternal dwelling places of The entire human race, the church is God's instrument in bringing both blessing and judgment upon the world. And let me just say this then in in passing. we, We need to learn to see things the way Micah would have us see them. If we take into account what Micah has said up to this point, what's really going on today? as we gather together. He has already taught us to understand that here we are as as the gathered people of God, called by God together, among the nations of the earth, coming by faith through the blood of Jesus into the presence of God, gathered on Mount Zion. And the the word of the Lord is going forth from Zion. The Lord is teaching people, calling people to, to faith and to repentance. And what Micah would have us understand, dear friends, is how you respond to to the word of God even today may matter for eternity. How you respond to the gospel matters for eternity. When you hear the word of the Lord, do you hear the voice of a tender, good shepherd calling you to himself, Or do you hear the mighty lion of Judah who conquers all of his enemies? As we think about this imagery, there's there's one other dimension to this that we need to bring out. Because there's also a word here for the people of God. And think about the people in Micah's day. They're they're lowly. They've been beaten and oppressed. They've had their inheritance taken away from them demoralized and robbed of dignity. And when the time for exile came, they were gonna be hauled off with everybody else. And Micah is saying to them, to to the believing remnant, please understand this is your role in the world. You will be the ones whom God will use to work out both blessing and judgment among the nations. My friends, we must never ever lose sight of both the significance and the responsibility of that. The solemnity of the charge entrusted to the church to be a light to the nations and to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's not a responsibility that we can just lay aside or entrust to another. This is the call of the people of God in the midst of the nations to bear witness To the God of mercy and justice. And if we're ever going to fulfill that role, then finally notice in in verses 10 through 15, then God's people must be holy. They must be holy as the Lord is holy. In other words, we have to actually be different from the world, We, we, we have to live in a way that is distinguishable from the way that the world lives. And so in verses 10 through 15, God speaks to his remnant people and he tells them that he's going to purify them and purge them of all of the worldly things and all of the idols that they have come to put their trust in. He's saying, look, God to to Israel, I'm going to have to do some work on you. I'm going to have to reform you. If you're going to serve my purposes in the world, I'm going to have to change you. And that is going to involve destroying the things that you have put your trust in. And so in verses 10 and 11, the Lord will cut off the horses and chariots, the cities and the stronghold. Those are the the offensive and the defensive mechanisms that some in Israel had come to put their trust in against the mighty Assyrian army. And God is saying, I'm going to rid you of those things so that you stop trusting in chariots and horses and trust wholeheartedly in me. And then in verses 12 through 15, Micah goes through this list, sorcery, fortune telling, graven images and idols. And God is saying, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to smash every one of your idols until your heart is consecrated until it's devoted to me. Now, when you read through these verses, it really reads like an oracle of judgment, doesn't it? Now, verse 15 is a word of judgment on the nations who do not obey the word of the Lord. But verses 10 through 14, while they read like an oracle of judgment, are in fact one of the ways that God blesses and is gracious to his people. Because you see, when God, when God calls us, I mean, our our hearts are so twisted and disordered that we need to be changed. And we know that we need ongoing renewal and change in the Christian life. And, And God doesn't just say to us at the beginning of the Christian life, okay, I've forgiven your sins. Now let's see how you do with those besetting sins that weigh you down. The Lord doesn't say, be holy as I am holy, and then stand back and fold his arms and say, let's let's see how you do with this. No, in his love, he says, I'm going to do a work in you, and among you, I will not leave you the way that you are. Because he is radically committed to his people's holiness, even if it means smashing idols and stripping away all of the worldly things that we have come to rely on. And so the message of verses 10 and 15 is God will take drastic measures to root out idolatry in the lives of his people. He will smash the idols if you are one of his beloved children. If you won't rest in him and place your confidence in him, he will do what it takes to have your heart for himself. And so as we hear this, we we need to listen to this warning for ourselves and hear the word of the Lord calling us to turn away from idols, from self-reliance and to cling to Christ alone. Micah is saying to his people, "Throw down your idols and trust in him, or if you are one of His children, the Father in his love will take more drastic measures, and he'll do it for you. He will do what it takes. To have his people's hearts. And so as we look at Micah chapter 5. In in a snapshot way. There is the ruler God promises. In verses 1 through 6. Praise God for the promised shepherd king. He is a descendant of David according to the flesh. Coming forth from Bethlehem. And he is... God's eternal Son, the only begotten Son of God, one with the Father and the Spirit. And He shepherds His people in the strength of the Lord and gathers them together as one. And because of Him, we can can know that our lives are secure and we can have real and everlasting peace. And then secondly, there is the, the remnant that God protects. His church His instrument in the world of bringing blessing and judgment as the word of the gospel goes forth from Zion to the nations. And my friends, if we are to be such instruments, then we must be holy as the Lord is holy. And so God is at work in us to make us like the Lord Jesus. Yes, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And so may the Lord continue that work in us and among us so that we might be more useful instruments in the hands of the shepherd king that his glory may be known among the nations. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you once again for the riches of your word and for giving us this description of our Savior, King Jesus. We pray this morning that our hearts would be more fully devoted to you and that your word would do its work in our lives, that we might trust you and serve you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.